0: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Reading Ada Calhoun's latest book, Also a Poet, You become immersed in several planets at once, the downtown New York cultural scene of the 50s and 60s, the legacy of the renowned poet and art curator Frank O'Hara, the nature of surrendering to your art, and ultimately how that art can anchor, unhinge, connect, and isolate you from your daughter, from your father. This is Ada's fourth book, her last one, Why We Can't Sleep, became a New York Times bestseller, and the same honesty and reflection that she brought to that book imbues also a poet, Frank O'Hara, My Father and Me. Ada, there are so many strands to explore here, and I found myself wanting to do research about this and research about that. You know, like when a book just sends you down so many rabbit holes and I, I can't wait to pursue them all, but we naturally have to begin with Frank O'Hara and your father, Peter Sheldahl. Am I saying that right? Yes. sure Sheldahl, are. who was the renowned art critic for The New Yorker, idolized Frank And embarked on and then abandoned on a biography of him. What was it that Frank O'Hara represented to your father?
1: My father grew up in the Midwest and he found Frank O'Hara in a poetry anthology in the 60s and saw him as who he wanted to be. He was cosmopolitan and witty and charming and sexy and fun and uh, lived in the heart of the city and my father moved to New York, I think, in part to to become as much like Frank O'Hara as possible. And he succeeded to a rather remarkable degree.
0: You talk about we'll we'll talk about the project that he embarked on. But Frank O'Hara also had importance to you. And did it have importance to you because it had importance to your father or was that an independent
1: attachment? It's, it's a good question. My father didn't give me very many things in terms of presents. He was not a big holiday guy. He did give me Lunch Poems by Frank O'Hara, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners know is this incredibly charming, very small book of poetry that he wrote on his lunch hours when he was a curator at the Museum of Modern Art. And I had it, I carried it around for a lot of, I guess, I must have been eight when he gave it to me. And I carried it on various points, middle school, high school. I gave it to a lot of people as a present. It's just a, it's a beautiful little orange mm-hmm. and blue book. So I thought it was special and I thought it was something we shared. My father and I thought we didn't have a lot in common, but that was always one thing I could point to as, as something that we both cared about and, and just the idea that we both figured how it made us both laugh, And that seemed like really a lot to have, have with my father.
0: And Ada, we'll come back to your relationship with your father, but so you accidentally discover these cassette tapes. Now, I guess we could have some listeners that wouldn't know what a cassette tape was, (laughs) but we'll 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 assume they do know Mm -hmm. what they are. So, tell us about the tapes that you discover, and also. I was a little bit surprised that you didn't
1: know that they existed. Am I right that you didn't know they existed? I did not know they existed. I had heard something about my father having tried to do a couple of books over the years and that one of them was about O'Hara, but I didn't know details at all. I was in the basement. This was in 2018 in the fall. I was looking for a toy for my goddaughter and I was pulling open drawers of this file cabinet. And I pulled one drawer open and there was this shoebox full of cassette tapes. And I started pulling them out to see what they were. And they had names like Larry Rivers or uh, Barbara Guest or Willem de Kooning. And I took them upstairs to my father and I said, you know, what? what is all this? And he was embarrassed. He said, I don't want to look at it. It was, it's, you know, it's a shame I didn't finish this book. It was interviews I did with friends of Franco O'Hara's for this biography. And I said, you know, you had a contract and everything. He had a contract. He started the work. He did it for a couple of years. And I was horrified. I was was so shocked that he had never finished it when he had done so much work on it. One of my jobs is I ghostwrite and uh, I'm brought in as a book fixer often. And I thought, oh, you had all this material. Surely there's something to do with it. And that's what kicked off the project.
0: So I had a a couple of questions around this. One is... What did you hope to do by picking it up? Because there was a part of me as I read and finished the book that thought you were picking it up to finish what your father didn't finish. There was a part of me that thought that this sounded like an interesting project since you had the same fascination with Frank O'Hara. And there was another part of me that thought you were doing it because where he failed, you could succeed.
1: <laughs> I think all of those motivations are accurate. <laughs> I, I think it was, it, it was, I was able to say I was being very altruistic. And also, I think there was a degree of competition and this idea that I could, I could do something he couldn't and that would feel good. So I think I would, yes, I would, I would, restore his legacy, fix this project that he'd never finished. And so he would have peace around it. I'd be a great daughter and a great writer. I would win in every possible way. And also I would show him up.
0: Yeah. Okay. All right. So it's, I like answers that are all of the above.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what it was. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say it, right? It's not, but I, I have to be honest that my motivations were, they were mixed and, and I, and I think part of working on the book was pulling apart all the complicated feelings I had about my father and how they they made me make a lot of choices in my life in terms of career and family that I hadn't really confronted before I dealt with them while doing the book. Well, Ada, just
0: just to sort of set the record, I think most human beings do very little from one pure motivation. (laughs) Thank you. I I, I, I think that's what saints are reserved for, not not the rest of us who live in the real uh, world. So when I was reading about these times of Frank O'Hara, both through your storytelling and by the transcripts of some of the interviews, it was filled with like so much wit and charm and sizzling with intellectual energy. So it made me think about this. Did that uniquely exist then that kind of, you know, cool, what we call downtown vibe for those of us that are New Yorkers, for West Coast people, maybe it was San Francisco. Does it exist now And or were they just a bunch of selfish, hedonistic people that (laughs) surrendered all other relationships just in the interest of being cool artists?
1: (laughs) That's such a big question. And I think, again, it's probably in all of the above. I think that a lot of the people who were downtown in New York City in the 1950s and 60s, they had to really... Achieve an escape velocity from mainstream America. and they had to, in many cases, be fairly extreme in how they they pushed that away and uh, and how they they had to get domesticity very far in their rearview mirror and and focus on their art and their writing. And that was their number one priority. And like you said, the, the effect, in many ways was quite spectacular. They, they formed this group of artists and poets that I think was new and was unique. They hung out at the Zira Tavern and the San Remo and they did poetry readings and lofts. And it's I think based on, especially what I heard on the tapes, it felt like they were living in a whole new way that hadn't really been experienced before. Has it been experienced since? I think so. I think almost every incarnation that's come into downtown New York has had some variation on that this cohort that feels like it's doing something that's never been done before and I think a lot of them have been right you know I certainly grew up in the the art world of the 80s and and I think about the culture of the 90s or the the dancers that are like Judson Church or there there have been all these different worlds that have been born in downtown Manhattan and, and I think they're all very exciting
0: So would you say that they were uniquely talented, this group, or do you think they were an iteration that happened in the 20s and 30s in New York and, as you said, happened again in the 80s and 90s in a different way? Or were they they unique?
1: I think it's hard to pit one group against another in terms of who who were the best bohemians. You know, I think they're There is this impulse that's definitely run through the neighborhood. And, uh, you know, I wrote this book a few years ago called St. Mark's is dead and many lives of America's the street. And it was about 400 years of these three blocks and, and what it's seen. And one, one thing that I say in the book is like, everybody's been saying, Oh, the street's dead. It used to be so good. And everybody has different moments when it was good
0: because Mm -hmm. everybody has a different idea
1: of what, cool is and what what scintillating conversation looks like so i think for the people who are into the abstract expressionist new york school of poets vibe obviously there's nobody who's ever been better than that group of people but i think a lot of people that i know can see can see humor and joy and creativity and a lot of different kinds of artists and writers
0: You know, there's two two little strands that I want to get your view on while we're sitting with that with that group of people. Mm. One is you talk in the book about the role of confidence Mm. and how confidence actually is more of what you might need than anything else to pursue a kind of a greatness. And One of the things I thought about with this group, which maybe was not fair, is does the view of those artists, including Frank O'Hara, get enhanced because of their own view of their genius? You know, like when, (laughs) you know, that they thought they were geniuses and they were cool and hip and doing countercultural things. How much does that fuel the rest of us thinking they're geniuses?
1: It's. It's a great question. And I think one thing that I realized working on that book is you have to be crazy, right? You have to be crazy (laughs) to like believe that you are. You have something to say. Yeah. That you have something to say and that the world needs what you have to say. And without what you have to say, the world is incomplete and you're looking at thousands of years of culture and you're saying, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's almost done. Right. (laughs) But there's one more thing and it's what I have to say and you have to, you have a, a drive to put your voice in that in that mix. Yeah, I had never
0: quite thought of it that way, but you're right. You're saying that you have something to add to a, a you know a gazillion miles of everything else that has come before it in art or write, any kind of culture.
1: Yeah, I, I remember the comedian Colin Quinn said. Somebody came up to him, some young guy came up to him in this in a green room, and was like, I'm the best comic who's ever lived. And I and it just went on and on about how amazing he was. And Conklin was like, Yeah, you might actually have a career because you you need to have that level of complete self-delusion in order to make a, a career out of something as absurd as stand-up comedy.
0: And maybe the rest of us fall for it in a way because you think, well. There must be something to their feeling that way, unless they look like or seem like just pathological liars, <laughs> right? Or like well, delusional.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I just, I think that you, you won't even, you won't even get far enough to have anybody judge whether you're right or not. If you don't have that, that kind of delusion, I quoted, I think it was in St. Mark's, I can't remember which book, but maybe it was in this one where my friend Adam Horvitz from the Beastie Boys, he used to drink on St. Mark's Place at the Holiday Cocktail Lounge. And he was talking about what was the drinking age there. And someone said, oh, you had to reach the bar. If you're like tall enough to reach the bar, even if you're 12, they'd give you a drink. He was like, no, no, the drinking age was confidence. He was was rather short. And so he was just like, you know, yeah, no, I I couldn't reach the bar, but I was really, I'd walk in there like I owned it. And then they would serve me.
0: That's in this book. Yeah. That line's in this book. Okay. The other line that you have in the book, and we'll talk a little bit about you, more about your dad in a minute, but one of the things that you noticed in looking at these transcripts is that your father. Might have been a brilliant art critic, but he was not a great interviewer. He would do the, I have five questions and I'm going to go through them, whether in the middle you say you killed your mother, you're not <laughs> going to pick up on that. They killed their mother You because you have another question that you have mm-hmm. lined up. But I forget whether it was your observation, but the line was that clever pushes people away And witty draws people close with the inference that John O'Hara was witty and your father was clever.
1: Yes, that was actually a line of my father's. He was very aware of the fact that he had a tendency to be clever instead of witty. And he aspired to witty, but sometimes he struggled with it. And as you said, in his interviews, he often was trying so hard. And I think... I can see now and have compassion, but like he was, he was out of his depth. Right? He had never done a book before. He ha- he was not a trained interviewer in in any way. So he, he was trying to to dazzle the people he interviewed. That was what he was good at. He knew he was mm-hmm. charming, and so he was trying to impress them. And the problem is, you get home and you have all this useless tape because it's just you saying these incredibly smart things and then going, ah, yes.
0: So what is the difference between witty and clever?
1: I think maybe I'm I'm not sure what he meant, but I think it was that clever is about charming people and sparkling and trying to make them impressed with you, and that witty is about a shared a shared moment of humor. There mm. are some stories that the poet, the wonderful poet Ron Padgett, tells in the book about how Frank O'Hara was with him, and that every time he made him he made him feel smarter and he made him feel safer and happier. And there, like there was one moment where like Ron Padgett thought he had embarrassed himself and, uh, and Frank O'Hara just said like, Oh, I think it was, it was, uh, Ron Padgett had said like he could, he blanked like O'Hara asked him for a book that he'd been reading and Ron Padgett like just blanked. He was so in awe of O'Hara and, um, and Frank O'Hara just like kind of like nudged him and like winked and said, "Ah, it's all grist for the male, isn't it? Like mm. what a lovely guy, right? Like, what a nice thing to say to a, to a freaked out young poet who just um who's an awe of you to put to to put your arm around him and say, like, yeah, we're in this together. That's witty. I think to be clever would be to put him down in some way or, mm-hmm. or to make some joke at his expense.
0: so it's the relativeness of because who was it that had the line describing Frank O'Hara as um, something about the moon, like from the 30s? Oh,
1: Barbara Guest. I love that line. She, Barbara Guest, the poet, who I think was often not included in the New York School of Poets because she wasn't a man, even though she was very much a part of that scene. She told the story about hanging out with him and, and they would get in like snowball fights in the middle of Sixth Avenue and they had all these very romantic outings at lofts. And it, was, it sounded so glamorous and she said he would look at you and it was like you were the only person in the world she said it was just you and the moonlight
0: Mm. that brings me to so i had not read lunch poems but i had read a i had gotten a gift for a friend of mine who's a very renowned art collector and i found a book in a rare bookshop that was Frank O'Hara's little book on being an art critic. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is this beautiful, I I think only 1,500 or 2,000 had been printed. So now I've been reading his poetry since I read your book. But as I understand it, it, it said that he redefined the New York School of Poetry. So how was his poetry viewed when he was alive? He tragically died at the age of 40 in a, a dune buggy accident on Fire Island. So we don't know where he would have gone with his poetry. But how was it viewed then? How was it viewed when he died? And how do we look at it now?
1: I think at the time, the poets who were called the New York School of Poets, so it was him and James Schuyler. And Kenneth Koch and John Ashbery, they were considered, and Barbara Guest, I would say, and you know, some others, they were considered part of the kind of group that included the abstract expressionists downtown. So it was this movement of, and there were a lot of collaborations between the artists and the poets. And and yet, when he died, the obit and the times, was not a good obit, I had him as a museum curator at the MoMA, and the subtitle was also a poet. And that's where I got the title. Hence the title. <laughs> yeah. So he so he wasn't universally acknowledged at the time as this great and genre-defining poet that I think he's seen as now. But
0: Ada, why wasn't he? You know, I thought it was interesting. I did look up the obit. And I thought it was interesting that they said also a poet. So when did he come into the standing that he possessed at his death?
1: Uh, it's a good question. So I I think, and and this is by by no means an academic book, and I'm I am not in any way an expert on poetry, and on the history of it. But as I understand it, like when he died in 1966, that whole world was still expanding and still growing in stature, and so as all of the artists became. Much more famous in that group, and a lot of the writers did too. Yeah, he was seen as an influence, and and he was better and better respected. And now it seems like he's had a resurgence among millennial poets, and uh, and, and and really quite broadly. His he's his work has aged remarkably well, I would say. Mm. And you see him on Instagram all the time, and and people seem to just to really eat him up. And I, I have a lot of friends who teach writing, and they say that when when they have the Franco-Hara week, it's always a big they bombshell, because everybody suddenly starts writing like O'Hara and trading his books because he's he's joyful. He's a wonderful, you know, wonderful voice.
0: I know literally nothing about poetry other than. If I read it and like it and it sort of moves my brain around, mm-hmm. then I think it's great poetry because it's done that for me. But okay. when I read his poetry, which I have over the last week, he's a storyteller. His, his poems are almost proximate to prose. Hmm. Yeah. And was that yeah. new? Was that
1: new when he was doing that as a form? I, as far as I know, he, he was very experimental in that way where he talked about, he talked about bad movies. He talked about Coca-Cola. He- Lana he Turner, Billy Holiday. Lana Turner has collapsed. <laughs> that's right. And, and, um, so like you said, there were stories in them and there were these references to, to high and low culture. He was also extremely well-read. He was a, a student at Harvard and and just read everything and watched everything, and so they but they come across as extremely accessible.
0: Mm. I did find a video, two videos of him reading his poetry, and he definitely had the cool guy vibe. <laughs> you know, the cigarette in his hand, mm-hmm. reading his poetry in this kind of laconic way, as if he was he was constructing it as he spoke. Yeah. And, you know, instead of you know something. Well, uh, there's somebody in the book who says he would just. Uh, oh, it was Gory, right? It was uh-huh. Edward Gory who said Gory would like struggle to produce one of his pieces of art, and mm-hmm. Frank O'Hara would just like knock out these poems.
1: Yeah, infuriating, right? Every <laughs> person is just so made him so mad that so he'd work all day over you know two words and and an image, and then meanwhile. You know, Frank O'Hara would say, oh, bef- you know, while you're getting your coat, before we go out, just one second, go to the typewriter and knock out <laughs> some incredible poem. Like, okay, How, annoying. How annoying. How so annoying. annoying.
0: <laughs> okay, so I want to get to your upbringing and your relationship with your dad, because I think, you know, as I read your book, Frank O'Hara just becomes a device, an interesting device, but a device. So explain, I grew up with very strict immigrant Jewish parents. So about 180 from your upbringing, although I was also in New York, just a few blocks downtown, (laughs) Uh but um, describe for us what life was like in your house with your actress mom and poet art critic dad.
1: Well, it was an only child. It was born in 1976, and it was a time when there weren't a lot of kids in the neighborhood. This was after, in the mid 70s, there was a big exodus, and a lot of buildings were empty in the village. There were a lot of fires, a lot uh, of for drugs. insurance money, a lot, of, a lot drugs, of drugs down there, right? A lot of violence, yeah, a lot of homelessness. And Tompkins Square Park was a tent city for a lot of my childhood. I wasn't, I didn't go there to play. I went to Washington Square Park, which was a little safer. And yeah, I I was this bookish little girl. I was very into doing the right thing. I was very moralistic. I, I read a ton, got good grades. And my mother was hilarious and um, very dramatic. She was on TV shows and uh, sitcoms. And my dad was in his office smoking. We both smoked a lot. I was sick a lot as a kid. And it was only really when I was working on the book that I was like, I wonder if... One of the reasons I was sick all the time was because they smoked seven packs of cigarettes a day between them and they kept all the windows closed.
0: Yeah, that could do it, (laughs) right? So there were a couple of instances where how they were raising you stuck in my mind. So one was, I think I have this right that by the time you were, they had a place in the Catskills as well as their apartment on St. Mark's. That's right. And they left you in the city when you were 14.
1: Yes, for summers.
0: For summers. So A, it was the summer. Why didn't they bring you? And what did did that feel like super cool and fun for you? Or was, I think I remember an instance where there was a moment where you thought, you know, this is a little scary or lonely that I'm here. Your best friend was away. Did How did you think about it then? And how do you think about it now?
1: I thought it was totally normal at the time. And I wanted to be I wanted to be alone in the city. At the time, they didn't have an, a house yet. When I was in high school, they had a trailer, like a rather small trailer on this land they wanted to build a house on. It was next to my aunt and uncle. And so I didn't particularly want to be in the trailer at 14 with my parents. So given the, the option, I was much happier to stay in the apartment alone. I had a job. I worked at St. Mark's Comics. I was taking some classes. I you know, I could cook for myself, not well, but I could keep myself alive. My friend Asia stayed with me a lot. So I thought it was completely appropriate at the time, even though, like you said, I had moments where it was pretty scary. There was a break-in at one point. The neighborhood was not super safe, especially in that moment, it was the highest murder rate. Actually, I look back now, and I think it was the early 90s it was really dangerous, especially around here. And then once I had a child, I started to think about it differently too. I thought, so my son's almost 17. And I still don't really like to leave him alone for more than you know a couple of days at a time. I mean, he can take care of himself. He's he's at least as mature as I was back then. And he's also, you know, a guy and six foot four. So I'm like, I think he's fine. But I'd miss him, right? I like having him around. And I also I like doing things for him and cooking and not in a rush to have him grow up. And I think That might be generational in part, that there was a a real rush to have kids be very independent very early back then. Mm -hmm.
0: But there was another part of me that particularly with a couple of scenes and one I'll describe, that I couldn't decide if your father was cruel or insensitive. So there's (laughs) the only... The only name that's made up in the book is Spencer, who is a young man, I assume a younger man, who uh, becomes an acolyte of your father and a person who becomes his best friend. And this young man obviously adores your father. They talk all the time. He seems to have a relationship with your father that you don't. And then at one point, your father starts talking to you about making Spencer his literary executor and maybe the beneficiary of his will. I I forget if that was part of it, but I thought, what the hell? (laughs) And, And so I was trying to contextualize Was your father not thinking it mattered to you? I mean, here you'd been grappling with Frank O'Hara's literary executor, who was Frank O'Hara's sister, Maureen, and that, and now he was saying this was going to go in this man's hands. You know, you say in the book you were furious and understandably furious, but where was that coming from
1: for your dad? Well, I don't want to guess too much about his motivations. He said at the time when I when I said I thought that was not a great idea, he said, oh it was just a thought. Um I I think he I think he loved this this guy. And I think he felt like this guy really um cared so much about his writing in, and cared about his legacy in the way that my father wanted it cared about. That he wanted to be seen as a writer only as a writer and that that was something that was difficult for obvious reasons for me to do and for my mother to do. And so in that way, I really do, I get it. And I also was pretty horrified mainly because my mother had done so much to make his life possible for 50 years. She had, she'd done everything. Uh, she'd cooked and cleaned and taken care of his kid and and dealt with all the finances and, and sublimated a lot of her own career in service of his work and I was I was I was not happy with the idea that he wouldn't really think about what it would mean to her to have somebody from the outside of the family suddenly in charge of of his writing for in perpetuity I, I just I thought that wasn't I thought that wasn't thoughtful and to your point I don't think he was I don't think he was cruel my mother would say he's never cruel he was never mean that it was always just a lack of uh, a lack of sensitivity
0: Mm. Because Ada, in the book, you raise a question, and I'm going to bring this back to the conversation you recorded with Maureen. I know her name isn't currently or wasn't currently O'Hara, but Frank's sister, about what it takes to be a great writer. And this whole issue that I think you raise throughout the book It's so interesting to me about, you know, your father may be sacrificed being the kind of father that would have been maybe ideal or more conventional. Your father allowing your mother to take a backseat to his accomplishment, the role of men versus women. And how ruthless and selfish do you think you need to be to try to achieve greatness, let's say, as a writer, because greatness is another theme that I think you have in the book. And after listening to these tapes and thinking about your dad and thinking about your own writing, where do you fall on that continuum of selfish ruthlessness that it takes to be a great writer?
1: It's a question you should probably ask my son, um, but uh, because I think it can be hard for us to see our own. Our own ruthlessness. I had a friend say after he read the book that I um that I'm more like my father than I I think that I thought I was. Mm. And that was one of the takeaways he had from the book. It was ruthless to run that whole conversation with Maureen, right? That was a that was not a that was not a choice that someone who was obsessed with getting straight A's would necessarily make because at that moment I didn't care that some people wouldn't like me for doing it. I just cared about the book and I wanted the book to be good. And I thought, here she is handing me the answers to all these questions I had. And this had been a whodunit for me for a couple of years by that point. And here she was mm-hmm. telling me, this is this was her answer. And I thought, oh, this is really, I mean, it's a horrible emotional experience to be on the receiving end of that phone call. But it was sure useful for that book. And I And I used it. And in that way, I think I was making a ruthless choice. In terms of how I live my life, I don't know that I've sacrificed anywhere near as much as a lot of men of, of my father's generation did for their their art. Right? I, I'm a very involved parent, and I have been the whole time. Uh, I'm a I'm a loyal friend. I uh, it's very important to me to have a full life, and that wasn't a priority for my for my father. So in that way, I don't think I'm I'm ruthless. I think it's more important to me. To have a to have a good life and be whole than it is to to care only about my art yeah, and and maybe it, maybe it does mean that my art's not as good as it could have been mm. but I'm I also in the course of working on that book I thought by what judgment right like and by and, what
0: standard
1: yeah and and oh it would have been my book would have been twelve percent better if I had you know ate less dinners a month with my son there's no way to there's no way to know. And I also really appreciated, a, you know, somebody telling me that it helps to have a rich life for your writing too, right? Like, you I, you know, I mm-hmm. I do hope that this book is better because I have all these different voices in it. It's not just the voice in my head. I have a lot of friends and 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 colleagues who I spend a lot of time with who wind up in the pages because I listen to them and I'm curious about the world.
0: There was a part of you through... Out your childhood and adulthood and in the course of writing this that was looking for your father's approval or standing And there you know having had a father myself for whom th- there was never enough and you, it, I feel the same way you talk about in the book that to some degree they're doing that pushes you to achieve more, make more of yourself mm-hmm. than somebody who's indulged by their parent and, and being considered brilliant and wonderful from the time they stepped out of the womb has has its pluses. Right, But despite your kind of yearning for this with your dad and maybe having been hurt, you, when he was diagnosed with cancer, with lung cancer became chief cook and bottle washer, his, you know, you'd clean up the apartment, you'd bring him to his doctor's appointments when your mother was in the Catskills. And do you think that as you were doing that, there was an act of forgiveness in that or it was an act of love? Was it an act of responsibility? Because you could see where somebody might say, you know what? You're on your own, sport. <laughs> <laughs> You've left me on my own. I'm going to leave you. I mean, you could imagine somebody feeling that way. Yet you spring into action with a kind of devotion that was, you know, admirable as an understatement.
1: Thank you. I um, I think in the course of dealing with the tragedies that befell my family, which uh, includes the fire and the cancer and the the long I mean it was a three years with cancer um I think in the course of doing that I came to really realize that it's you can only control it how you react right you can't mm-hmm. make somebody different and I tried I was working on the book while I was taking care of my father and I thought oh wouldn't it be wonderful if he said something nice right now and I could put it in the book and it would be a good steam for us then I thought oh like I would have a, it would be a great ending to the book if we had this moment where he stared across the table at me and he said this, you know, and I kept trying to set him up for a certain kind of perhaps saccharine glory in the pages of the book and he would not do it. And it was because it wasn't true to who he was, character is fate, and that was who he was to the very end. And so all I had control over was how I reacted. And I thought, I just want to be proud of how I how I act and I want to be be proud of what mm-hmm. I do and so i'm going to do my best to be a good a good daughter and a good person and have you know have appropriate boundaries around what i'll do and not do but but overall i felt good right so he he passed away in october and it was it was a hard few years and and yet i when he died i thought i can i can feel alright about how we ended things and and mm-hmm. um, th- we didn't have any conversations left unsaid And I, there was no moment at which I thought I, you know, I should have, I should have behaved differently. I felt all right. So there was peace in that for me.
0: It had two, it had more than two, but there were two things that struck me. One is, you know, the Maslow theory of hierarchy that you go from, the need, you know, wanting your need, how you satisfy your needs. And One of the things that I was struck by at the end of your book is most of us start out, whether we have good parents or bad parents, wanting, needing their view of us to be positive and define us. And if we move along my now made up theory of need, (laughs) we substitute our parents' view of us to define us, to our own view mm. of ourselves, to define us. And it struck me reading this that you broke that cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, your father had his own complicated relationship with his parents and maybe didn't know how to parent, didn't, you, you know, there's a million things. But it seems to me as I read about you talking about your son or your husband or your friends or your life that you broke the cycle for yourself from parenting in a different way. Do you do you feel that way? Or do you worry about that?
1: I do feel that way. And I, I've talked about it with my Son and my stepson, both. My stepson's twenty nine, and my son is, like I said, he's sixteen, almost seventeen. And I, I've made mistakes because every parent makes mistakes, but I, I do think I made different mistakes. I, I didn't, I didn't make the same ones that my my father did, and that that does feel good.
0: Mm. How much of this do you talk over with your mother? Your mother's still alive.
1: Yes, very much. She is.
0: How um, much and- of this do you talk over with her? Because she also. Subordinated herself or suppressed herself to meet the needs of your father.
1: We talk about it. We've talked about it a lot. She's very open and and very self aware about these things and about what she sacrificed. And she doesn't she doesn't regret it. And she feels like she has had a wonderful life. And she feels very grateful. It's funny. I said about the his office. I said you should have had it. I was like you were the she was the breadwinner for a long time and when she was acting and he was working at the Village Voice, why didn't you have the office? Why is he the only one who mm-hmm. had this special room to go in and work and think about all the things you could have done? And she said, I could never have given myself that. Even if even if it had been offered to me, even if he had been encouraging of that, I couldn't have let myself. And I think that was generational. She had a, a lot of voices in her head about what women were supposed to do and what they could give themselves in terms of, in terms of permission. And she overcame it to a remarkable degree, but not all the way. And I think that's one way in which I've been able to maybe take, take that to the next level, uh, in this generation and, and, and say, yeah, I deserve to have an <laughs> office.
0: So the last piece I'm going to have us talk about is one of the things that you talk periodically in the book about is whether your father found you interesting and that being interesting was a key ingredient that he prized in people. So in reading the book, I I looked up a couple of things. One is the piece he wrote that's called The Art of Dying that was in The New Yorker in December of 19. So I listened to it because it was your father reading it, which was interesting to hear his voice after reading the book. And one sentence paragraph was, I don't feel interesting." It was a whole paragraph, just that sentence. And I thought, how funny if that's the way your father did actually feel when he considered that so critical. And it made me wonder, did he consider himself a, do you think he considered himself a success or a failure? Because as I read the book, I think wow this is a group of people who see nothing between great and failure. Hmm. That there's no very good that there's no being purposeful and impactful at some level within a a good full life. There's only genius or failure.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean I think he's he struggled um with a lot of those exact questions and And like you, I aspire to seeing a less black and white world and, and to finding some kind of wholeness in, in our ability to, to be good and bad at once and to, and to do lots of different things to different degrees of, of success. And, and I, I think that was, I think you're picking up on something that was real, that, that he, he didn't, he didn't have that nuance when he thought about himself and when he thought about other people. Hmm.
0: We've been talking with Ada Calhoun, the author of Also a Poet, Frank O'Hara, My Father and Me. There's a couple of things, Ada, that I want to thank you for, in uh, aside from taking the time to be in conversation. It's an interesting story in its own right that, as I said at the outset, made me want to learn more about everything, about you, about your father, about Frank O'Hara, about the nasty Larry Rivers... <laughs> You know, that certainly didn't seem like a nice person. But the other thing that your book made me think about was this. You have a quote in the book from Morton Feldman. And during the eulogy for O'Hara, I don't remember if it was the eulogy or the memorial service 10 years later, but he said, who but the dead know what it is to be alive? And there's a quote, so much of O'Hara's poetry, I realize now, I think this is your voice, exists in this sort of brink of, of death, a pink cloud. And reading your book reminded me that by thinking about death, by thinking about people who are trying to be great, we actually do learn how to live. And your book reminded me of that, which is, you know, what a great gift to the rest of us to remember. I mean, I think about your dad in this piece, The Art of Dying, Writing. He's driving up to the Catskills. He's gotten this diagnosis and he's noticing the trees and the music he's listening to. And you see it the way he sees it by his Description. You do the same thing in the book. We see things that we might not have thought about before. So, thank you for writing it. Thank you for your honesty in telling the story. And I think you're a great writer.
1: <laughs> well, that means a lot to me. You're a, you're a legend in the in the book world. So that that's lovely. And I I I'm grateful for what you say because I do think there is something so true in in this idea that death and life are connected in ways that surprise us and and living so close to death for as long as I have. And so many people dying and so much tragedy in, um, in and around my family, it, it has made me a lot more grateful for what, what we have in life. And, um, and I'm, you know, I, there's this book, Wild Edge of Sorrow that I have been rereading this year. And it's, it's about that very thing that the, the more, the more we think about death, the more, the more we're alive.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there's the book called Denial of Death by Ernst Becker that won the Pulitzer in the 70s. And that's a academic, complex analysis of just that notion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, Ada Calhoun, thank you for taking the time to be in, in conversations and congratulations on your book.
1: Oh, it's so my pleasure talking to you. And thank you very much.
0: Just the Right Book is not just a podcast justtherightbook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at RJ Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years and the letters always are a version of this. Can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out. And guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selick, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.